0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Andrew Morgan, who's the leader of Rhondda Taf Council, which is the second biggest local authority in Wales, after Cardiff. Andrew, you're quite an interesting character, because... I think you at one time worked for the council and rose to become its leader. But first of all, if you tell me a bit about your roots.
1: Well, I've always been born and bred in Mountain Ash. I still live there, that's where I represent. Uh, went to school in Mountain Ash, went on to college when I had an apprenticeship. And you're right, I started off, my apprenticeship was actually with Cunner Valley Borough Council. So I was the last apprentice for Cunner Valley Borough Council. That was then merged, obviously, we were on the Cunner kind of Taft, came about when the authorities merged. And from that time on then, I worked until 2004 for Ron, the Cunnan Taff in the housing department, looking after some schools and housing maintenance in the, it was called building direct at that time. And then I gave up in 2004 to go on to become a councillor. And as you say, I've come through the ranks now and now I'm now the leader of the authority. So when you got your apprenticeship, what was that in? I actually signed off as a bricklayer. So I'd done a bricklaying for three years, so I became a qualified bricklayer. My job in the council then was it was more general maintenance. Say, uh, so we covered on schools and housing maintenance. Became a supervisor over time, and then ended up then doing maintenance inspections, going out and assessing work. I went back to college then for a period of time as well. done building studies, so I've got qualifications in various building studies, and that's my whole background really is construction.
0: And do you think that the fact that you have been a council employee in the past
1: and in your early years has helped you as leader? I would say absolutely. In terms of there is still now an awful lot of staff in the local authority that I worked with previously and I've known through either when I was there just as an employee or as a trade union rep. And it certainly has given me a better grounding and understanding, I think, how things work. And also um, I would say that I know where to look for information when I need it. So what was it that brought you into politics, would you say? Did you come from a political family? No. As far as I can see, there's no politics in my family anyway. I got involved through politics, I think, through my links with the trade union. When I worked in the local authority, I got involved with the trade union. I was a GMB branch shop steward in Canna Valley, uh, within the housing department, and I also covered some of the areas in highways and other, those kind of departments. And I think that got me interested in politics and the way that the council run and how things operated. And from there, then, I decided to go on years later to become a councillor. How old were you when you joined the Labour Party? Oh, um, I joined in 97, so that would have been 21 years ago, I think. OK. 22 years ago now. Oh, wow. and you were quite young at that time. You're pretty young now. Well, I would have been 21, so I was
0: 21, okay. 21 years ago. And did you, at any stage, have any doubt about whether it was going to be the Labour Party or not? Because, obviously, in the in the Valleys, sometimes Plaid Cymru has been quite strong, but did you ever have any inclination to join
1: Plaid? Never thought about joining Plaid Cymru. I have to say when I got interested in politics, if it wasn't the Labour Party, I have to say it would have probably been the Lib Dems for me. Of course, recently we had the death of Paddy Ashton. But I, I thought he was a fantastic politician, I have to say. And of course, it was that era when he was the leader of the Lib Dems. Tony Blair was the leader of the Labour Party, the 97 election. And I think, you know, if I hadn't decided to vote and support Labour, I would have probably voted Lib Dem at that time. 97, and, of course, for me, it was my first time voting in terms of general election.
0: And, of course, it was a big landslide for the Labour Party. So at that time, after so many years of the Conservatives being in control, you must have had high hopes for, for the area, really. What did you expect to happen with the Labour government and what do you think actually did happen?
1: In terms of what I would probably have been hoping for now I was, as I say, I was 21 years of age, voting for the first time in a general election. Just, at that time, I wanted a different direction, seeing the way things were after, you know, my family worked in the pits, uh, my father was on strike, doing the miners' strike, etc. I can remember myself uh, as a child going up and seeing, you know, some of the picket lines in my view. So just thinking about the different era, about changing the way the valleys were. And yes, yeah, so, you know, there's been lots of positives. People complain about the Labour government from '97 through to uh, when Gordon Brown lost power. But I can point to loads of positives in terms of, you know, the way the country has changed. But fundamentally, some of those core problems in the Valleys, which do go back, not just to the minor strike, I think go back decades and decades, some of those problems, unfortunately, are still you now. And there are those, of
0: course, who say, you know, from outside the Labour Party and their opponents of the Labour Party, the Labour Party has been in power in this area, in the Valleys, for 100 years. And yet, things haven't really improved and there is still a lot of poverty around. How do you argue against that sort of point? I
1: think in to a certain extent I would say it's a fair point, but you can point to areas where there's been significant improvements across the valleys. Do you just look at the landscape in terms of you know, greening the valleys, making them beautiful areas to work and live, etc, and to visit, we get a lot more tourists now come to the valleys than we've ever had in the past and that is obviously a fundamental part of growing the economy going forward. But also you've got to recognise I think that because of there's been decades of poor quality housing unfortunately if you look at you know the health problems associated with the type of industry we've had, a lot of those families and people are still living in the area. Um, quite right, you know, they've been born and bred here. So of course, you know, there is a much higher percentage of people unfortunately who are on uh, disability benefits or sickness uh, benefits, etc. Um and that does take you no know, it's, a, it's a big generational shift. So as much as we are trying to bring more jobs into the area, um one of my big priorities as council leaders about the infrastructure I think in the the valleys, I think that no. every time I meet a minister, they'll tell you that I'm constantly lobbying about more capital investment, giving the powers to local authorities to change things. And that's what, in Rondon and Taff, we've been doing the last three or four years under my leadership, is heavily investing in infrastructure and changing some of those things, which decades and decades, really, are underinvestment. I think
0: there's this big dilemma, really, isn't there? Um, Because uh, it's clear that since the mines closed... There's been huge challenges faced uh, in areas like this because, you know, to replace all those jobs, and of course they, what we sometimes forget is the period of time over which there was a decline in the mining industry, because it wasn't just in the 1980s that there was a decline, there'd, there'd previously been a decline um, back in the 60s, and even earlier than that there were decline in the numbers of people being employed, but of course we're now in a situation where nobody's employed. and. There have been all sorts of initiatives over the years to try to get new kinds of employment in and they haven't sometimes worked to the degree that people would have wanted them to and perhaps now we're in a position where people are talking more about not so much having jobs created near where people live or at least this is this has been a bit of a theme over the last few years but improving the public transport infrastructure so they all
1: go down and get jobs in Cardiff. How do you feel about that? It's a bit of a mix. You're right. First of all, I think we're wrong I mean, not to say that if you think of the valleys and unemployment around 4%, You know, that, that's incredibly low when you think of where it's been in the past. So unemployment in the valleys actually is you know, fairly low. But it is about quality, good quality and well-paid jobs, I think is the biggest issue. And you're right that I think there has been a bit of a mix in, in the, the split now about on the one hand, you want to bring as many jobs as possible into the valleys because, obviously, it's good for the economy, it's good for the for people in terms of working local, where they live in, etc. But also, we've got to recognise that some of the those high-skilled, well-paid jobs may never come into the valleys, and that's part of where we're working on a city-region footprint. Well, if we can get the jobs in Cardiff or it's Newport or Bridgend, etc., now neighbouring counties, then as long as there is good, reliable transport systems for people to commute back and forth, then that is the next best thing. Because if people can work outside of RCT, earn good money and come back and live in RCT every day and spend that money locally in the local economy, that is also positive. But of course, you know, our number one priority is to try and get jobs into the Valleys, whether they're public sector or private sector. Recently, I read a book by a historian
0: called Daryl Leeworthy, called Labour Country. And I did a podcast with him a few weeks ago, actually. And he makes the point that the Labour Party had, in a sense, its golden era maybe between the wars when it was in charge of local authorities in uh, valleys areas and was able to major very strongly on creation of recreational amenities for people. and That was the big age of, of, of projects uh, in local authority terms. The bit that he doesn't really go into so much is the the negatives which I've heard people from outside the Labour Party and sometimes within the Labour Party talk about, which is that there was a culture which grew up in the Valleys where Labour was the very dominant party of petty corruption and sometimes more than petty corruption in terms of jobs for the boys, You know, people being in the Labour Party would get jobs, it was, it was in the days when council houses were being given out by councillors and they would go to party members, people would be made heads of schools and things like that if they were party members. Is that something that you've been conscious of? I think we've perhaps gone beyond that
1: now, but is that something that as a young guy you were aware of at all? It's nothing I've, I've ever experienced or seen firsthand, but... As you said, there, you know, there's stories of the past, and I suppose it's the same um, in any local authority or any sort of political. You know, There's temptations in the past. In particular, a lot of that, as you say now, isn't directly in the hands of councillors. So, for example, your stories from decades ago about the way that various contracts with local authorities or public sector... Bodies are awarded. That's all done now through a competitive process in terms of officers and elected members don't get involved in that in any way now. It's all uh, delegated and and done officially and uh, transparently. It's not about just doing things right. You need to be seen to be doing things right. And I think that is the issue. I get some people will say, oh, no, probably in it for your own ends and being a councillor, you know, it must be an easy job. And I think, well, if I'd stuck what I was doing when I became a councillor, first of all, I actually took a £10,000 pay cut from my then job with the council to become a councillor. I was lucky I was able to afford to do that. And for two or three years, that's that was my only income. And I just enjoyed doing as a councillor. Okay, I became a cabinet member in 2008 and subsequently became a council leader in 2014. But if I was in the private sector, I could earn an awful lot more money doing the kind of construction work I used to do in the private sector than what I'm earning now. And I would also say I'd probably work an awful lot less hours as well. It is a kind of image, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's, and it's not perceived by everybody, but there is certain people out there who think that you know, there must be kind of you know shady deals done with politicians and it's an easy life or you know, there's something in a few. I can show you that isn't the case. There is a lot of
0: cynicism around, isn't there? And Absolutely. I think that uh, played into the uh, Brexit vote, didn't it, to a considerable extent, and... I mean, I just find coming across people, you will often find them taking for granted that you'll agree with them when they say things like, all politicians are just in it for what they can get out of it. And if you say, hold on a minute, and say, well, actually, I don't agree with that, and I think that a lot of politicians across the board are actually trying to do what they can for the communities they represent. They look at you as if you're a bit bonkers. There's been a sort of drip-drip feed, hasn't there, which has gone on, I think it was exacerbated, wasn't it, during the MPs' expenses scandal about ten years ago. How do you combat that sort of thing?
1: It is difficult, and you're right, I think, the vast, vast majority of politicians that I've met, whether the AMs, MPs or councillors, and of all political parties, you now I meet with the other 21 leaders in Wales, which are independent, uh, conservative, Plaid Cymru, and Labour, and I can tell you now that the vast, overwhelming majority of all the members I meet are in it for the right reasons, and we all share the same ambition to try and make sure that we do the right thing for our areas. But it, you are right, the cynicism, it, it really has grown in recent years. I think at the difficult time as well has come with austerity, so of course... Councillors have had to make cuts. By law, we have to settle legal budgets. That has put us, unfortunately, you know, at odds with the public on many occasions, where we cut services that even as councillors we don't want to be cut in. Nobody gets elected to cut services. Why on earth would you stand to, to do that? You, know, you, you must be a fool to go into something to make yourself unpopular. But unfortunately, I think there is this perception, and it's difficult with the public. And as you say, with the expenses scandal, then with MPs, that just added fuel to the fire. I have the occasional person will say to me or other councillors will tell me that they say, oh, you know, you must be in it, you must claim X, Y and Z and it's not just your salary you get, you know, you have all the other perks and benefits. And I say, well, if there is other perks and benefits I am getting, get in, perhaps you should let me know because I certainly don't claim anything else and my allowance where I get paid, which is set by an independent body, is published every year and is put in the press. But unfortunately, there are some out there who just simply think that it's a cushy job, you're in it for your own ends and... It is about what you can get out of it. And as I say, if I was doing my old profession or if I went into the private sector, I'd be in a lot more for a lot less grief, I can tell you. You raised the
0: issue of austerity, and of course for the last few years there has been a local government landscape that's been dominated by austerity, by the policies that have been put into effect by the Conservatives in Westminster. And that has fed down to... The Welsh Government, because obviously the Welsh Government depends uh, to a very large extent and has until extremely recently depended effectively for all of its funding from from Westminster and the block grant that comes down. But what impact would you say that austerity has had on your ability as a local authority to provide services and obviously broaden it out because you've got responsibilities that go beyond Ron the current half because as well as being the presiding officer of the Welsh Local Government Association, you're also the chair of the Cardiff Capital City Region, so you've got a wider brief, haven't you, than just RCT. But have you ever felt that you have been constrained to such a point that sometimes you just feel, oh, well, I don't really want to be involved in this anymore?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. If you go back when I first became leader 2014, the cuts we were facing at that time were around 4%. Thankfully, the cuts have got less and less, and this year and for next year, we're getting very small increases in our funding. Still nowhere near what we need in terms of inflation and budget pressures, but it is not the scale of the cuts we were facing four, five years ago, and I could probably assure you that I wouldn't be leader now if we were going to continue on a trajectory of Significant cuts. We we're probably laying off you now three, four hundred staff a year. That was the kind of scale of cuts we were facing. Uh, if that continued, I certainly don't think that I would want to be leader going forward. Um, I didn't come into politics to be laying staff off, cutting services. Yes, there's things we can do more efficient, and we're doing an awful lot of that and in the background, just modernising services, being better, you know, spending the money. Uh, as I just say to all staff, I meet with senior management from right across the council every three months. I meet over a 100 managers with my cabinet. And one of my mottos, which they'll tell you, is would you spend this money if it was your own money in the same way? And when I challenge them about thinking, well, their budgets and departments, if that was your own money, your own personal money in your house, would you look to do it more efficiently? And that's the kind of motto that I've had about challenging and seeking efficiencies. But in terms of the scale of the cuts, I laugh. I, I come into politics, I think, the wrong time. or well, I certainly became a cabinet member the wrong time. In 2004, when I was first elected, the then cabinet of this council would sit around and every year they would have, say, 4-5%, even under the last administration. Before 2004, when it was Plaid they began 4-5-6% increases in funding. You're talking £20 million a year extra. The cabinet then could sit around and say, right, well, no, we've got to fund social care, we've got to fund schools, but we've got £4-5 five million pound left over what area do you want to in? Unfortunately, I became a cabinet member in 2008 and then we started falling off the cliff on budgets and I've never once gone to a budget meeting any time I've been in the cabinet or since being council leader saying, oh, we've got a surplus of money here, um, where would you like to invest it? Unfortunately, it's just what departments are we going to cut to try and protect social care and schools? And it is getting more and more difficult and thankfully the Welsh Government in the the last two years has been able to really minimise the level of cuts to us because otherwise, as I say, I don't think I'd want to continue doing this job otherwise. Of course, one thing that um, sometimes is overlooked is the fact that when you have cuts
0: where you're having to lay off three to 400 people, it's not just those people who themselves might be able to get a redundancy package or whatever and um, have their the loss of their employment cushioned a bit, but it's the loss of job opportunities for the future for people coming through, isn't it? And in the Valleys in particular, there's always been, or for a very long time, there's always been a very high proportion of people who've gone to work in the public sector. Yeah. And it's all very well to have this ideology of cutting back the public sector. But is the private sector coming forward to provide well-paid jobs. I mean, we know you quoted a statistic earlier about unemployment being about 4%, but a lot of the people who are in work will be finding it tough because they will perhaps be in part-time jobs, they might be in zero-hour contracts jobs, they may be in very poorly paid jobs. So although it may be the case that the sort of headline figure of 4% seems low in comparison to what it was in the 1980s, for example. It still masks enormous social problems, doesn't it? And the fact is that there are a lot of people who have benefited from the uh, sort of working family tax credit uh, situation in the past. But even that has been cracked down on to a degree. I mean, looking forward, what you're trying to do, I guess, in the capital city region with the colleagues who represent the other local authorities is to devise new projects which will actually help to increase the prosperity across South East Wales. How do you think that's
1: going? It's been slow to start. We we did obviously back the IQE project at the foundry down in Newport. What does that consist um, of, actually? With that one, it was a £38.5 million pound investment. It's the old LG facility down there. That means that because they're going to be manufacturing the chips down there, you know, it's basically this isn't the next type of technology moving on from the old silicon chips, as they used to be called. Any smartphone, any tablet, they all have these new chips in there. So this is basically having a foundry, making and manufacturing, high-end, really well-paid jobs in clean rooms, uh, new technology. We've put an investment in there, and what it means is that the private sector is matching our investment by about a tenfold share. So the overall investment is in excess of £400 million going in. That's going to, over a period of time, bring forward about three and a half to 4,000 well-paid jobs you now in excess of forty, 000, fifty pounds pounds salaries. And it's th- that kind of investment where there isn't just a, a normal grant. We've put an investment in there where we'll get a return so that money over a period of time will come back into the public sector and then it allows us then to work with other private sector to lever in other companies. I think one of the things we want to do and I think we need to be clear about is as local authorities and as a city region we we're not going to create thousands of jobs. What we're going to do is help enable others to create the jobs and I think it's about you know looking at the right infrastructure a working Welsh government around the metro uh, so shortly we hopefully as a joint cabinet, we' will be discussing plans about how we can further add to an invest uh, on the back of the metro. We're bringing forward a skills paper. You now I came into local authority years ago, as I said earlier, as an apprentice. We want to see how we can really improve the the apprenticeship and graduate offer in the South East Cardiff Capital Region area in terms of working with private sector. We've got an awful lot of good private business and especially new startup businesses that have the op no, they got real opportunity to expand um, and to really you know further develop. But one of the reasons, perhaps, you know, some of the information we're getting back is that private sector small private sector companies don't expand is because taking on apprentices and graduates who will help them to grow and, and to, you know, step up, they they look at all the, I don't know, the the red tape that goes with it. So it's dealing with various grant bodies, dealing with the colleges, whether it's with Welsh Government, the HR, the handholding. You know, it, there's a whole process there. And if you're only a small company, it can actually be quite daunting in terms of having to do that. So some of the work that we're looking at is the capital regions. But, well, if we actually have a team of people, and we support, especially the growth sectors, about how do we not wait for them to come forward and say, well, actually, i like to take an apprentice. Why aren't we knocking their doors and saying to them, actually, you, why don't you look to take an apprentice? Why don't you look to have a graduate person with you that can help develop your business and expand? That's the way to try and boost private sector. There's other areas We're looking at housing, for example. Every local authority has brownfield sites, going back to the legacy of the you know, former coal mines and coal sites, a number of them could be developed for housing. The Welsh Government is really keen in terms of expanding house building because the demand is there. But some of those sites, without some sort of public sector subsidy or intervention, will never come forward because, unfortunately, you know, it's the way it works in the world, is that private companies who build houses are there to make a profit. You know, There's a lot of big house builders out there and some are much better than others, and I'd accept that. But at the end of the day, they're all there to make a profit, they're not going to develop sites if there's no profit in it because of you know, substantial earthworks and other infrastructure requirements. So something that the City Deal Camp has been closely looking at is, well, how can we look at to intervene both with that maybe our funding, Welsh Government funding with the private sector, to bring forward some of those legacy sites where they've been dormant for in excess now 20 years. Um, we've got a number of them in round the current half. There's others in Cofilly, Gwent. if you look at Merthyr. So we've been really pressing the case to say, well, these are the sort of areas we can also intervene and help, because it's all very well if we can bring jobs here, but you also got to have the housing, the transport, the skills and the jobs, and those four combined are what's going to help us grow the economy. And how do you see that panning out? We're starting to make some real progress, I think, in the last 12 months. Um, there's been an awful lot of work going on in the background, both by individual local authorities and across the 10 as part of the... The city Deal cabinet um, but i'm hopeful that in the next probably six to nine months that you will see announcements coming forward and cabinet you know, the joint cabinet will be discussing some real meaty proposals to make some long lasting changes certainly the welsh government is engaging with us i think the ten local authorities officers and members are engaging well it's time now for us to get on and deliver
0: we're still in this position of uncertainty so far as brexit is concerned we're waiting for this so-called meaningful vote to take place in the House of Commons. What impact do you think leaving the EU would have on areas like the one that you represent?
1: That It does ultimately it all come down to on what terms we leave. My own view right now, it is an incredible mess. Um, it, it To me, it seems a complete shambles right now. I voted Remain. I wasn't big on campaigning for me, but my own view was I thought we would be better in in and out. My view hasn't really changed on that, but I have to say, no, I said publicly, I accepted the vote. Ultimately, people voted to leave, so I thought that we should be working on that basis. As the time has gone on and the hints of a deal have come out of the woodwork, my view has been that if we left on some of the terms I'm hearing or on no terms at all as a no deal... It, it really will be disastrous in terms of um, some of the industries that we have in South Wales and also about the impact it'll have. We Currently, in our know, staff, 10,500 staff we have in RCT, we are now have to troll through and, and speak to staff who may be impacted in terms of you know, this new documentation they have to have in terms of remaining in the country and Some of these people have been here for, for many, many, many years, but also it's not just us, of course, within the local authority. We also got social care staff out there that it impacts on, so we're working those things through. We're looking at uh, potential impact on food supplies. Um, people you now say, Oh, no, it's, it's nonsense and it is gay stories. I, I didn't take too much of a view on it in the early days, but of course, as we got closer to it, now we've Officers have been delving into it more. We need to make sure that we can maintain supplies for things like schools, care homes, from view. And it doesn't just mean, well, where do you buy your food from? Because you, you may well buy certain produce and food that's produced in Wales. You think, oh, well, it's all well and good. But where does the ingredients come from? And if there's certain things then that are imported, which happen to come through Dover, well, stood away, you know, What happens if it's a seven-day delay in things coming through Dover? Oh, well, manufacturers say, well, actually, we'll have to stop production. It's those kind of things. Today, I've just had a briefing all through about fuel and about we need to make potential contingency plans in case there is a rush on fuel uh, in terms of there could be some disruption to supplies, we don't know. But, of course, if the public decide to... Just like when we had the fuel strikes previously, it wasn't so much the fuel strikes caused the problem. It was the public then worried about they would run out of fuel. So then you had the huge queues of petrol stations where people would stockpile fuel. And suddenly, local authorities then couldn't get fuel themselves. And of course, you know, we, we need to get K staff around to K okay homes. We need to get staff to do home help, Meals on Wheels services. So there isn't a lot of planning going on the background and with no clear picture on what the deal is going to be, or the final deal, or if we have no deal at all, it is incredibly difficult. And it's only now, I would say, the last six months as we've, and myself personally, have really started delving into it and trying to work out, well, what would the scenarios be, I've gone more concerned about the impact. Of course, then, on top of that, what happens about the European funding, the Shared Prosperity Fund? It's been suggested that we won't be no worse off Ministers, you know, UK government ministers, have said that oh, there will be a, a shared prosperity fund which will, in effect, replicate the previous funding stream. But as of yet, there isn't a single act of Parliament gone through. There is no budget announced. There is no suggestion about how the funding formula will work. We don't know if it's going to go directly to Welsh Government, whether it will go to city regions, if it will go to local authorities, uh, what kind of themes in terms of the investment themes for infrastructure. We're having a conversation in the dark right now. So, if
0: the House of Commons votes down Theresa Mays deal, what would you like to see
1: happen then?
0: Are you in favour of a, another referendum?
1: I've been really careful, actually, not to support a, a second referendum, because my view was that, as I say, a vote did remain, but with a second referendum, I, I was really concerned about, oh, well, this argument, where does it stop? But... If there wasn't a second referendum, I think that if the deal is voted down, I would probably then be in favour of saying actually the public should decide on the deal. So if they can't get agreement of the MPs, there should be a very fair and balanced approach in terms of saying, right, this is what the deal, this is what the positives, this would be the negatives, and put it to the public. And ultimately the public decides whether or not then we accept the deal on the terms as they are. I can't see any other way for us to progress if Parliament votes it down, if Parliament simply says we voted down, a no deal Brexit, as far as I'm concerned, would be a disaster for us. I would say to anybody who thinks that we should just walk away without any sort of deal to really look at the implications. So my view would be, yes, Parliament votes it down. The only alternative then is that the public would have to decide for themselves whether well, or not they accept the terms of the deal. But I think there needs to be a, a fair and balanced debate. And none of the scare stories on either side... I think it should be something independent with a facts simply put to the public and the public has the final say. OK, Andrew Morgan, thanks very
0: much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.